From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. When we talk about women in the military, it's often pegged to the still unresolved issues of domestic violence and sexual assault, or the fact that only since 2013 have women been legally allowed in combat, although they've actually been in combat zones long before the 21st century. Nationally, the number of women in the military ticked up slightly in 2022. That's according to the latest Department of Defense statistics, but women still make up less than a quarter of the force. As we've observed on an earlier episode, the number of military veterans is growing in North Carolina. By 2030, the state is on track to house the largest veteran population in the country. And as we continue our effort to narrow the gap of understanding between military and civilian communities, today we'll meet three women who served in the U.S. Army and have gone on to serve their community in civilian capacities in southeastern North Carolina. Deborah Dix Maxwell achieved the rank of Sergeant First Class in the U.S. Army Reserves. She served in Operation Desert Storm in 1991, and she is a past commander of the Wilmington National Association of Black Veterans. As many of our listeners know, she is also the current president and the first female president of the North Carolina NAACP. She joins me now. Deborah Dix Maxwell, welcome back to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. Good to be back. Good to have you with us. Now, you have talked about the military as a gateway for opportunity for folks. What made you want to join? What what was happening in your life at the time? Well, I wanted to join in high school, but I graduated at 17, and neither of my parents would sign for me. So I had to wait a few years, and that's like, oh. You hadn't joined, so then I joined the Michigan National Guard at that time, which I realized was an error. One should always belong to reserves or active duty because when you belong to the National Guard, you can go out at the will of the governor. So that insulates you if you're in the reserves. It has to be the president. And were there times that you, what happened when you were part of that particular force? Nothing happened, but just knowing that was insightful to um, tell, to make sure I informed other people about that. Now, this was this was a few years ago, and things have changed since then. But there's still women are such a small percentage of U.S. armed forces. What kinds of issues back then did you know that you were walking into as a woman and as a woman of color? Well. Being naive, I didn't realize I was going to run into sexual discrimination, um, more so than racism. And that pervaded even up to um, Desert Storm in my life. And you don't realize these things until you're the one who's impacted and you go, oh, this is not good. Is it hard to believe at first a little bit? Like if you're not expecting it, you don't necessarily see that that's what it is right away? You, you, you're just shocked. You know, I had a sergeant, because my first job was an MP, and we had to learn how to drive five speeds, and we drove the Jeeps. 
And he said, y'all ought to be home taking care of children while he's teaching us how to drive Jeeps. That was a very sexist remark. Um, did we complain? No, because we didn't know our rights at that time to file a complaint about him making such a sexist comment to us. Now, if you could go back to that moment knowing what you know now, would you have done it? Would you encourage a younger woman? To, what What would you say to that younger woman? Give Give her advice right the now. The new me would get his name. I knew what company because we were training and file a complaint about him and his behavior because that might have deterred some other people. Remember, in the training process, and training is strenuous mentally and physically, and that might have deterred someone from completing their training. Yeah. Now, you were called up for Operation Desert Storm in 1991. Can you tell us how that happened? Do you remember getting the call? Yes, I got the call the day after my daughter's seventh birthday. I'll never forget that. Um, I had friends on active duty who did not deploy, so they sent me the most wonderful care packages once I got over there. Unfortunately, I was in my entering my last semester of graduate school for my MSW when I got deployed also. So that delayed my education, separated me from my child, and her other parent was already in Desert Storm. So this is a traumatic for my child having both parents over there. Um, she was the most news-watching little seven-year-old you ever saw, um, trying to keep track of us. Making sure that her parents make it through. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things did you do as part of Desert Storm? I was the OR, operating room, or surgical technician, some different name, supervisor. Um, so that's why I got pulled in, because of the medical specialty that I had. If I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have been pulled in. So that was keeping the schedule, making sure the OR was straight, supplies, and things like that. And I was attached to a unit out of Greensboro, because my unit was out of Greenville. Yeah. Now, you, you said to me that at one point you realized you hit a glass ceiling. <laughs> Tell us about that. Upon returning home and receiving my MSW, I tried to get commission through the reserve system um, to the point of going to headquarters in um, Columbia, Fort Jackson area, trying to see different things. And the only thing I was told was if I went on active duty, I could get it. But as a single parent who just finished Desert Storm the year before, I had no inclination of going on active duty as a single parent. No harm intended to those who are, but the support mechanisms that are in today in 2023 were not around in 1992 for families. They, they had mechanisms, but they were not as good. So I declined and stayed enlisted. Now, women, you said, may not want to report incidents of domestic violence or sexual assault that happened in the military. And this is something the military has been grappling with. We're, we're talking about it more than we used to, but it still is, is fraught. And we still hear stories about uh, women dying fr from some of these issues. Why, back when you were in the military, 
Was it so difficult for a woman to report something that might have happened to her at the hands of a of someone else? First, if you're a spouse of someone in the military, be you the, the soldier or your spouse is the soldier sailor, um, domestic violence is grounds to be charged, loss of rank, loss of pay, depending on the motion. And so as an MP, I remember going to a field grade officer's house, which meant he was up there. And you could hear the woman's head hit the wall. And when we knocked on the door and came in, she said, everything all right. I don't need to press charges. So you couldn't do anything because she chose to do nothing. But then you might go to a lower enlisted, and she's pissed off. And she said, oh, yeah, I want him, I want all these charges against him. So he gets demoted from a six to a four, loss of pay, this and that. So that impacts the family. And unfortunately, some men use that leverage to get away with it because they knew if the wife reported it, the family would economically um, be penalized. Yeah. Yes. Now, as first female president of the NAACP, uh, have so many questions about that, but that's probably a different interview. The NAACP is doing a special push uh, to raise awareness for veterans about benefits they might not know they're entitled to, places they can get services. Tell me first why so many veterans don't know about what, what's available for them and what they might be entitled to. Well, there's a scarcity of veteran service officers because some things you have to apply for upon your discharge. Everything you do not have when you get out unless you, you know, retire. So therefore, like if for me, I worked in Brunswick County, but because I was a resident of New Hanover, I could not talk to the service officer in Brunswick. I'd have to come over here. Just little things like that. There are enough people. So that's why we're trying to get the numbers, engage the soldiers, sailors to find out where they are and what they need. And that's very important. And so what's the best way if a veteran was listening to this going, I don't really, you know, I know I need help, but I don't know where to get it or how. What should they do? Each county has a veteran's affairs office. Every county within the state, I believe. And we're trying to help our veteran affairs commander at the state level identify who are the missing veterans because if we can help him identify the veterans in this state, guess what? He gets more funding to help more veterans. And so it's a win-win for us as veterans if we can help him identify. Right now, we're trying to identify our members who are already members who are veterans. But if you join now, we ask the question, are you a veteran? Can you just give me a quick example of the kind of benefit or service that a veteran might not know they're entitled to? Well, one thing most people know is that there is burial assistance, the flag and some money towards that. It's not a lot. But when you are um, deemed disabled and there's a percentage tier of payment you receive, and part of that disablement includes modifications to your existing residence. I've seen people get walk-in showers, um, stand-alone closets, ramps, at no cost to the family. The VA, through their assistance, takes care of it. 
And so we'll put some resources on the website so people, if they want to look this up and, and figure out how to get in touch, will know how. Deborah Dix Maxwell, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for your service. Thank you, and veterans, please apply for your benefits. You're listening to Coastline. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. We recently met four military veterans, all of whom were men. And while women have been part of the U.S. military since this country's beginning, they're still a clear minority, making up less than a quarter of the overall population. But today, we're meeting three of them who served in the U.S. Army and Reserves. You might know Marsha Morgan from her recent political campaigns for state office. In 2022, she challenged incumbent Senator Michael Lee, who retained his seat by less than two percentage points. And while she leads with military values on the campaign trail, she doesn't talk much about the details of her service that included a number of firsts, such as becoming the first female combat service support company commander in 2nd Infantry Division in Korea. Her military service also took her to Germany, the Netherlands, and the Pentagon. Before her military career, she was a professor at Smith College. She joined the U.S. Army after a period of deep soul-searching. She served for 25 years, and she retired as a colonel. Marsha Morgan, welcome to Coastline. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you with us. Getting you to talk about your service has been hands down uh, the most difficult challenge in this series of veteran interviews that I've that I've done so far. There's often hesitation among military veterans to talk about their service, and very understandable reasons, from from trauma to the the values that the military, uh, I don't want to say instills in you, because I think you already came with some of those values. But tell us, tell us why this is hard. Part of it is, uh, I think, just an issue of talking about yourself. It also involves, I think, revealing personal parts of yourself, things that you have kept private for a period of time for, for different reasons. And that's going to be true for different reasons with different people. Right. Right. And what what is the reason that you agreed to talk about your service today as part of these veteran conversations? I think it's important for people to understand the amount of involvement that women have within the military, within uh, supporting and defending this country and the willingness of that part of the population to take an active role in uh, in defending this country. That this is very significant. And a lot of times uh, when we go to a grocery store that or a hardware store that has reserved parking for military and the woman gets out of the car and someone will come up and say, 
Uh, no, that's reserved for the, for the uh, for your husband, for the person who actually served. And you and you say, excuse me, I am the veteran. That this people, has happened to you. Uh, it has, and I've had it. Re- a number of other people have said similar things have happened to them as well. Or uh, there are places that will offer a veteran's discount for purchasing an item, and. They'll say, are, are you the veteran? And yes, I am. Yeah. And still, after all these years, women are such a small percentage of the armed forces. Why do you think that is? Have there been roadblocks for women? Or is this just a new idea? And I mean, in, in terms of the history of the country, I don't mean. I want to say when, when I enlisted that women made up um, a much smaller percent than they do now. I I want to say it was around nine or ten percent, and it has grown because they have opened more military occupation specialties for women. They have come to understand that women are capable of doing more than we were given credit for initially, uh, and so as more opportunities become available, more women are. Uh, allowed or encouraged to to join the military. Now, when you joined, you you had to do some real soul-searching because you, you learned that you had to agree to fire a weapon and possibly kill someone, which at the time was completely in opposition to the values that you'd been raised with. Can you just talk about that? that kind of moment that you had to sort through? Uh, Certainly. A little bit of background. When I was in graduate school at The Ohio State University, one of the uh, subjects that I taught was riflery. I became an NRA instructor. So although I had grown up uh, without weapons anywhere in the house, I did learn to shoot. And as I said, uh, actually I became fairly proficient. Uh, became an NRA instructor. At the time that I enlisted, uh, um, women were still in the Women's Army Corps. We were not allowed into the regular Army. One of the things that the recruiter said was, you will have to sign a document agreeing to fire a weapon. That was not a problem to me. By the time I actually did enter the service, it was that we would now be expected to qualify with an M16. And again, that was not a problem for me. What does qualify mean? Uh, that you can hit a, a certain score on a target. Be, have a certain uh, level of proficiency uh, uh, with the weapon. You, you, yes, demonstrate your expertise with the, with the weapon. Um, I had uh, grown up, uh, my background is uh, Quaker, Methodist, Grew up in a religious environment, went to a Methodist undergraduate college. Um, And I hadn't really thought of that when I enlisted. And it wasn't until toward the end of of basic training that we went to the range. And all of a sudden, the target that I was looking at was not the concentric circles of a bullseye, but it was now a human form. And it dawned on me that 
what I might be asked to do, that, that what I was, in fact, being trained for just in case, was potentially to take another person's life. That was very traumatic for me. And I, I again, kind of going back a little bit, uh, my going into the military was a little bit of break in what I had started my life. I knew I was going to be a teacher, uh, felt that I had experienced, I call it my two-by-four moment with God, where my, my career path was changed, and I didn't know why, but for some reason I felt that God was directing me to go in the military. So now I'm in this completely foreign path, and now I'm being... Um, potentially asked to take a human life. And I didn't know that that was something that I could do. Uh, obviously, the ability to hit the target was not a challenge. Quaker, Quakers are pacifists. Yes. And, and Methodists kind of follow along that, that same path. So I, I really struggled over the course of several days. And, and the, the time that you're on the range is essentially a week of your training. And I really had to leave. Um, the, the first day we fired, perfect. The next day I'm struggling with it, and I was beginning to have a hard time hitting the target. And I had to go back and look inward and say, for what could I, for what reason could I take a life? And I had to kind of go back to a very close circle and say, uh, to protect my niece, to protect my family, to protect my dear friends. And eventually I broadened that base to protect my country. And that was a significant moment for me. Uh, it was one that I, I really had to work through. It was quite a challenge for me. And, and part of that was also th that women could be a part of this action. I didn't realize when I first enlisted that I had uh, an idea or an impression within me that Every generation owed a debt to their to, to society, to their government, to pay for, to to support that they had an obligation to defend their country in, in whatever way that might be. And uh, so, wait a minute. I just want to be clear and make sure I didn't miss something here. You're saying you felt that each generation had this. Yes, and and this I sort be, of moral obligation. I and I can't tell you where I developed that, and I'm not sure I was aware. But before I went to basic training and was going through all of these different experiences, but somewhere within me was that we have an obligation to help build our country in some way, and that my generation had not paid that debt. My my brother had been 4F during the draft. Uh, and so he didn't go. And, and of course, I, I wouldn't want my brother to go to Vietnam for any reason. But somehow within me welled up this sense of, wait a minute, he didn't have to pay that debt. I could pay it 
as a female. And that gave me great pride in what I was doing. I've discussed this with others. Uh, when you're in, in basic training or you're in a training environment, you're on a parade field once a week. You're, <laughs> you, you hear the national anthem at least once a week. And it gave me goosebumps to hear that, that national anthem uh, and to realize that I was a part of paying the debt, as I said, for my generation, for my family. And it was, that again was a very powerful, impactful aspect of, of things that I learned in basic training. The, so you have that coupled with the, uh, can I take a human life in order to fulfill paying this debt? So, so there were there were multiple aspects of that that was very challenging, uh, in some ways rewarding, uh, um, eye-opening. Certainly, a lot of self uh, introspection. Yes, throughout I the mean process. that that's what I'm struck by is is all of these kind of key moments for you were part of this deeply introspective process. So you were making all these choices very consciously, not just jumping into things. So you had a lot of firsts as a woman. And I, this is going to be a hard part for you. Apologies. <laughs> but tell us more. In the introduction, I mentioned you were the first female combat service support company commander in 2nd Inf- Infantry Division in Korea. What did that involve, and how did you wind up in that position? Um, it was that was actually my my third assignment as a commissioned officer in the military. You have enlisted, and you have commissioned officers. I said a while ago that when I enlisted, it was still the Women's Army Corps. By the time that I got my commission women were being allowed into the regular army. I was in the second graduating class of women going through officer candidate training that was in the uh, regular army. I was one of the first female maintenance officers in the army. And that specifically is an area that is... Non-traditional. Really dominated by men, Yeah. yeah. And the... I had... My initial assignment was as a training officer because they weren't sure what to do with women yet. We were brand new, so they put us in a safe place. I was then uh, selected to teach ROTC. Um, I was the first female west of the Mississippi to teach ROTC. It just so happened that it was at University of California at Berkeley which was an, another interesting experience where we were uh, uh, barricaded in, barricaded out, a lot of protests, uh, spit on in uniform. Uh, again, and why was this? Why all the protests at this time? Uh, May Day, um, just anti-military. Mm-hmm. The person who was the commander of the ROTC unit said, if you really want to go places, be successful, 
uh, I, I want to say he recommended that I go to Korea. Now, there, there were many jobs in Seoul and south of Seoul that were not in the division. They were in a, in again, in a, a support element. I, I don't know how I wound up there, but I, I did. I commanded the heavy maintenance company for the 2nd Infantry Division and uh, was there for uh, 13 months. They extended me because they couldn't find a replacement. <laughs> so I, I, I got to spend a little bit of extra time there. And it was just, um, again, very unique. And for the, I began thinking through this when I was thinking about coming to talk to you today. For about the first 10 years of my career in the military, most of it was um, met with, gee, we've never had a woman here before. I'm not so sure about that. You heard that a lot. Oh, yes. Each new position yes. where you were the first female, yes. you would get some form of that. Yes, absolutely. And I would try as sweetly as possible to say, I won't be the last. <laughs> and, and was very much aware that there were, I, I felt additional pressure. I'm somewhat self-motivated to, to do well. But in addition to my own desire to do well, I felt it even more important that I had to succeed so that the woman who came after me would be given a little bit more of a chance than I was given. I knew it wouldn't be total, but it would be, they would get a better opportunity to uh, do their job. As it was when I would go in, and, and my counterparts would be, we had to prove that we could do it, whereas if a male walked in, they were expected to do it. So, so we, you were proving yourself for yourself and for other women. Almost every step of the way. If you could go back and just talk to either your younger self or a, a young woman who is coming into some of those positions now, what would you say to her? What do you, what do you wish you knew with since hindsight is a twenty twenty and experience is is uh, something an asset that you carry with you that you could offer to someone else, what I perceive from uh, young women who are entering now, if they are in, I'll say what is more accepted role for women, they they don't know what that's like. Now, I, I, I saw something a few days ago that the first female infantry woman was selected as a guard of the tomb of the unknown soldiers. There have been women who had other career paths, military, but not infantry. And I thought... Each of these women who are leading the way within their small, within whatever their realm is, are experiencing the same thing. And it's that you have to do your best so that others will have a similar opportunity. Thank you so much, Marsha Morgan, 
for being with us today, and thank you for your service. It was an honor to be able to serve. You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, Veronica Carter might be a name you know from Leland Town Council, but she's also a military veteran. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Today we're meeting three U.S. military veterans who happen to be women. The military remains a bastion of male domination. In 2022, according to the Department of Defense, women made up 17.5% of the active duty force and about 21.5% of the reserves. Veronica Carter went from ROTC in college to a 20-year career in the United States Army. After just two years of service, she found herself in charge of 78 soldiers, all of whom were men. She retired as a major with two tours in Korea and one in Germany under her belt. In 2019, she was elected to her first term on Leland's Town Council. Four years later, she won a second term. And she joins me now. Veronica Carter, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you with us. Now, we're going to go back to your why in a minute. But women were legalized in terms of being in combat in 2013. Not that long ago. But you've said that, especially as a logistician, which is a big part of your service, you've always been in combat or near combat zones. Well, depending on your role, absolutely. Um, We were combat service support as a branch, but we do that. We support the combat folks. We provide ammunition. We provide fuel. We we maintain, so we fix things. And the Army philosophy on fixing things is to fix forward if you're in a war zone. If you need to be rearmed, you can't always come back. Sometimes ammunition and fuel have to be brought to you in the forward area. Um, If it happens to be a female who is that ammunition specialist, or that fueling specialist, it, it's her time to go. She goes up front. Um, the, the, the bombs and bullets don't diver- differentiate between whether it's a female fueler or a male fueler. It's just whoever needs, that's their role, that's their job. They go up front, they deliver it, and then they come back. So there have been women in dangerous areas for years. What the difference is in 2013 is that they were actually allowed to compete for the combat arms branches, which particularly in the officer corps and in some of the senior NCO roles, lead to um, more opportunities in leadership. So I couldn't have applied to be in the armor branch or in the infantry branch. Those were uh, not available for me. But it's um, very rewarding to see women make those choices and meet those standards and be given those opportunities these days. Well, tell us a little bit about what it was like. You enlisted in 1981. Two years later, you're in charge of a whole bunch of men what was their reaction to you when they well, first learned you were in yeah. charge? I'm gonna I'm gonna correct you because I was commissioned. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I wasn't enlisted. Okay, okay. so Thank I was you. commissioned as an officer in 1981, and uh, you know it 
it just happened that I was in the Ordnance Corps, which uh, does do, do ammunition, but it also, we're the um, life cycle managers. We do maintenance. We do uh, service support. We do things that keep equipment going from the minute it's brought into the Army inventory to the minute it's taken out of the Army inventory. And so at that time, we were called multifunctional logisticians. They now actually have a logistics branch, which they didn't have when I was in. But um, I went to Korea to be a platoon leader, and the platoon I got was the ground support equipment platoon, which are the guys who maintain everything from radios to microwave vans to generators. And I say guys because they were all, they happened to all be men. Were you at all worried at the time about their reaction to you? No, not really. I was the first um, woman that had been a platoon leader there since the end of the Korean War. And I know that because I had Korean nationals who were mechanics in our shops. And they had been there since the end of the Korean War. And they were fascinated. And so one of the things I did was I established myself that I was going to be out there on the floor with the guys, learning from them and um, seeing what they did and experiencing what they did. So I had my warrant officer, who had literally been in the Army longer than I'd been alive, (laughs) assign me a job um, like a mechanic. And I was the mechanic's helper because, again, I'm not the technical person. This is a, I train for leadership and management, not necessarily, although in our basic course we did have to um, change out a deuce-and-a-half engine and take apart a Jeep and put it back together again. I'm still not the subject matter expert, okay? So I was assigned the assistant mechanic to a PFC, uh, one of the lower enlisted guys who was like, they all come out in the morning and they get their jobs, and here's my name on the little board. This is 1983. And they're like, Carter, not the LT. Really? The ma'am? And that's kind of the joke. They would call you the ma'am because it's yes ma'am instead of yes sir. And I had my coveralls and I had already signed for my general mechanics toolkit. And off I went and I said, okay, I'm your assistant. I'm your helper. You tell me what you want me to do. And initially in the morning when we were taking the engine out, he was very kind of tentative. He's like, excuse me, ma'am, would you mind unscrewing that bolt right there? And I'd be, okay. Okay, now what? Yeah, okay, ma'am, would you mind doing that? By the afternoon, he was like, could you get that over there? <laughs> oh, ma'am, you know, we're good. But it was so funny that the uh, Korean nationals had, again, apparently they had a male lieutenant before me, and he, he stayed in the office and did all the paperwork. I would do the paperwork after everyone went to dinner, and then I'd catch up on my paperwork. But I watched them because I was on a, a dolly underneath the vehicle, and, and so all I could see was my feet, and I'd see all these feet come by, and then they quickly duck under to see, if, was that really the lieutenant? And then they duck back up and leave. And so I thought that was cool. But doing that kind of got some respect from, from the, they were like, okay, she's, she's going to hang with us. Now, you told me that in the, it was in the 90s, mm-hmm. there was a, a kind of a survey done, mm-hmm. canvas done, of women in different positions. In, in the, the officer Ar- corps, in the Army. Uh, the Army Times published, I think the Department of the Army did a survey where they wanted to see where women were within the different branches. And so they published it, and I remember calling some of my friends and going, can you believe this? I mean, we kind of thought thought it. It seemed like you knew everyone who was in your branch by your rank. You were one of 58 58 majors. 58 Ordnance Corps majors in the entire United States Army, which was well over half a million soldiers at the time. And so at that point, it doesn't sound like... And and tell me if it's if uh, I'm mishearing this, but it doesn't sound like you were very concerned about your gender, even though you were a serious minority in terms of gender when was, you went in. I was aware of it. I mean, you couldn't help but be aware of it um, because in some cases, 
there were no female majors. Frankly, there were not a lot of female captains when I was a lieutenant running around. Um, there were no female lieutenant colonels. They were very, very rare. And if they were there, they were former WACs. The Women's Army Corps had just been dissolved in 1979, which was two years prior to my commissioning. The first graduating class at West Point was only a year in, behind, in front of me. They were 1980. And so there was not this big cadre of women. So who do you go to if you need mentoring? If you think you're having a problem with a male supervisor or superior commission officer, who do you go to and say, hey, have you had this happen before? Um, there was no one to go to. You hoped that you had open-minded uh, male mentors, and that did happen in, it in my It did case. happen for mm-hmm. you. In fact, you said that you uh, were going to resign mm-hmm. on two different occasions. Right. You wound up not resigning either time and, and got your, your 20 years in. But can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I want to hear a, a sort of brief version of mm-hmm. the story when you felt you were given an unlawful command. Well, it, it was um, certainly unethical and immoral in my mind. Um, and it became unlawful or um, unreasonable because I asked to go see the next person in the chain of command on their open door policy. So this was your direct supervisor this was who was my, a male. This actually was the commander, a brigade level b- commander, which for the listeners is a full colonel, one step below brigadier general, um, who had told me to do something. And I said, with all due respect, sir, I'm not sure that that's quite the way to go. And I would like he was, to. He was giving you an assignment. He was he was saying, you either do this or you resign. OK, you do what I want you to do or you resign your commission. And you and, didn't want to do it because it was the wrong direction for your career, the I, way you I, saw it. Well, I, I questioned why he was having me do this. We had spoken about this months ago. Um, I had been led to believe that he supported what I wanted to do with my career and when I finally got to that point and had gotten accepted and, and was ready to move on, he suddenly kind of squashed it and said, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to do this. And I was like, wait a minute, sir. I thought we had like kind of talked about this. And he said, well, no, you either do this, what I'm telling you to do, or resign. Now, obviously, he can do that. He can say, do this and give me a direct order. Um, and I said, well, sir, I'm really asking you, kind of begging you right now to please reconsider um, you know that it's tough for women. I would like this, I think, would be better for me career-wise going forward. And I, I just, I'm not sure why you've decided this, and it's certainly your prerogative, but with all due respect, can I'm not sure this is the way to go. And I would really like to discuss this with uh, the next person in the chain of command on their open door policy to see if there's some way forward. Which is an Army policy. You're that, all, that you're is an army within your absolutely. rights. Absolutely. And that's when he said, no, you either do this or resign. And I knew that was wrong. You never tell a soldier they can't go to the next person. It's almost like a whistleblower, okay? You can't tell them they can't go see that next commander in the chain of command. And he said, you either, no, that's not what I, that's not one of your your choices. You don't get to go to the next person in the chain of command. You either do this or resign. So I went upstairs, printed off the resignation letter that I had already written like two weeks earlier and dated it and brought it downstairs and said, if this is the way the Army is, then I've probably made a really bad choice on my chosen profession, and I resigned. Um, at least I put in my resignation. Um, there's a chain of command that the resignation letter goes through, and there were several people along the way who stopped, saw that 
um, understood what was going on with the choice of that particular choice of the next assignment, if you will, and stepped in and said, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, tell us what's going on. And as it worked out, um, the colonel was actually changed his mind. And uh, he, he had some help, I think, perhaps. Um, it involved a three star and a one star coming back, basically saying, you know, you you should not have told that soldier she could not come see us. And these were door. two men who were both on your side. Um, well, I'm going to say that nece- not necessarily on my side, but on the side of right- righteousness. OK, sure. OK, it's not necessarily right or wrong or my side versus his side. This is army policy. And either you're going to follow it. You know, if you want me to follow your order, then you you've got to follow policy, you know. So so that took some courage to push for that, to, <laughs> to still go over his head. Were you ever concerned there was going to be retaliation? For oh, that? absolutely. It was probably the most difficult, I would say, three to four weeks of my career. Um, there were literally senior officers who would not be seen talking to me because they didn't want to be looked at as they were giving me help or aiding and abetting, I guess you could call it, someone who actually challenged the colonel. Um, I, I had people crossing the street, so I wouldn't salute them and, and give them a greeting of the day. It was that bad. Um, however, my immediate supervisor, who was a major, uh, a, a male, he was there. Uh, I give him great credit. I'll call his name, uh, Tom Nunn. He he stood by me the entire time. I even told him, I said, you might want to divorce yourself because you're really a good guy and you're trying to do the right thing. And here you are trying to mentor me and stand by me, and I don't want your career to be ruined. The Army needs officers like you. And he said, no, I'm not going anywhere. Now, you were in the Army for the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. If you could go back, knowing what you know now, having all that experience behind you, and warn your younger self mm-hmm. or talk to a young woman who is a lot like you and and kind of Share with her some advice that would be good for her to walk in mm-hmm. with. What, what would you warn your younger self about? Um, probably if I could go back, I wouldn't have had that second, that first resignation because I was in G- Germany at that point because the first colonel that kind of put me in my place um, decided that he was tired of all the women that the Department of Army kept sending him to command his companies. Now, we never heard him say that, but we got wind of it from some um, higher senior male officers who were friendly towards the young female captains. And um, he had an interesting background. Um, I'm not going to say that it it was bias on his part, but he was from Mississippi, graduate of Ole Miss, uh, 1964 graduate. And so um, the fact that I was not being given that next step, along with some other folks who happened to be women, or happen to be males of color or women of color um, seemed interesting. And basically, so you saw a pattern of discrimination. I saw a pattern, correct, but I couldn't prove it. I didn't know how to prove it. I didn't have anyone to go to and say, you know, gang people, senior commission officers are telling me that this guy said this out in his out loud voice, but nobody's reporting it. That's against the Army policy. What do we do? Um, I would have taken it on then with what I know now because obviously when I took it on in Germany – the system worked. It did. Okay. And so I always wonder, would it have worked if I had taken it on then? Because that person went on to, in, to finish his career out in the military. I don't know how many careers he might have stifled or ruined or um, cut short. And I regret that to this day that, you know, I, I didn't know what I know now. 
or didn't have the courage at that point. I think when I got to Germany, you said it took a lot of courage. I think by that time, I was like, either this works or I, I need to get out. This is it. I've drawn this line in the sand that if if this is not, if the army's not going to do what it says it's going to do, then I don't need to be in the army anymore. So that wasn't for me courage. That was just me saying, you know what, either they're going to put up and they're going to, this is all going to work out because the system's going to work or it's not. And then I need to get out. We, we have just a minute or so left. Mm-hmm. Why did you join in the first place? I thought it was going to be fun. <laughs> I'm a kid from Brooklyn, New York, who, uh, frankly, the out, you know, people still to this point can't believe I hate the outdoors. Um, you know, my idea of roughing it is that I have to go to like a no offense to, um, you know, uh, a Motel 6. But if I have to go to a Motel 6 instead of like a, a True or a, a Marriott or something, that, that's roughing it for me. Um, but the, the, I, I thought about joining the military because I wanted to earn some money and I was going to join the reserves. I did really good at on the ASVAP that they used to give every and tell high us, school. tell us what that is. That's the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, I think is what it stands for. It's been a number of years. Forgive me, y'all, if I got that wrong after 40-some years. But um, they give that test in high school. They used to. And I apparently scored really high, had all these different branches coming to me, recruiters, come join us. Merchant Marine Academy even contacted me. So I just said, you know what? If I'm going to go in, I'd rather go in as an officer than enlisted. And that is this edition of Coastline. Veronica Carter, what a pleasure having you with thank us Thank you so much. And thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks also to Deborah Dix-Maxwell and Marsha Morgan. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.